and it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. Glad you could join us. Continuing on in Colossians chapter 1, He will come to have first place in everything. His resurrection and our resurrection. Today, Pastor Robert Elliott presents. Jesus Christ is first in rank when it comes to bodily resurrection. He's a prototype of your resurrection. And you should expect to rise from the dead. Verse 18. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now, we saw prototakos last time in Colossians, prototype. And back in verse 15, we saw that Christ is presented as the first in rank and first in importance in his creation. And now today we're seeing in verse 18 that we have Christ being the first in rank and the first in importance in resurrection from the dead. What does that mean? It means that because Christ bodily arose that you will bodily arise. It won't be an idea that resurrects when the time comes for your resurrection. It won't just be a spirit that resurrects when it's time for your resurrection. It will be your glorified, resurrected body. Whether it was buried at sea, whether it was cremated, whether it was buried, God will reconstitute everything that makes you and raise you into the resurrection body like unto Christ. Because he's the prototakos and the prototype of resurrection. Now, Jesus bodily rose, so you will bodily rise. Jesus was recognizable after rising, so you'll be recognizable after rising. By the way, in the gospel accounts, when they didn't recognize Jesus, it wasn't because he was non-recognizable. It was because the Spirit of God prevented them from understanding who he was for a time. Jesus Christ also resurrected never to die again, and you will resurrect one day never to die again. Jesus Christ could eat in his resurrection body and will be able to eat in our resurrection bodies too. Jesus Christ conquered sin and Satan and death in resurrection and in him we too will conquer sin, Satan and death because he's the prototakos, the prototype of bodily resurrection. If Christ is being formed in you, if you're spiritually maturing, then you will face your own death in light of this. If Christ is being formed in you and you're spiritually maturing, then you will face the deaths of your loved ones who were in Christ much differently than the family beside you in the cemetery when they opened the grave and have no hope in Jesus Christ. Number three, Christ is the ultimate authority. There is no authority greater than Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate authority. Verse 18 in its entirety, he, Christ, is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. He already has first place in everything, but it's said that he will come to have first place in everything because we are bold enough and brash enough and sinful enough not to always recognize his first place in everything. The verse says, the latter part of verse 18, that he, Christ himself, might come to have first place in everything. So here's the situation, church. Jesus Christ is the CEO of the church. His body, Jesus Christ, is the highest in rank and importance and the prototype of resurrection from the dead so that he will come to have first place in everything in our evaluation of things. 
first place in your everything. What would that look like? That Jesus would have absolute authority, first place in your everything. What would that look like? Well, among other things, Jesus Christ would be seen to have absolute authority over defilement and distance, over disease and disciples, over demons and death, over darkness. All these things I'm listing off are from the Gospels. Jesus Christ demonstrated himself to absolute authority over this list, and I'll keep going. Dumbness, inability to talk. Publicans, we'd say the civil service. Old religion, deformity, traditions, trials, as in courtroom trials, triumphs. Jesus Christ has absolute supreme authority over the seas, depths, hunger, gravity, groceries, congenital disease, defects. Jesus Christ has absolute authority over disappointments and our days and our depravity and our forgiveness. And Jesus Christ has ultimate supreme authority over heaven, over peace, over fruitfulness, over the rapture, over the second coming. And yes, the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, has absolute authority over us, our lives, over you, your lives. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority, and so we must live as it being so. We cannot put in the same sentence, no and Lord. One of them has to go. Either no goes and we live under the lordship of Christ, or the lordship of Christ goes and then we can say no to God. But we cannot have no and Lord in our hearts, minds, mouths. We can't. No and Lord do not go together. And so when Christ is being formed in us, when we are spiritually maturing, we intentionally put Christ first in everything. Do you? When we are spiritually growing and Christ is being formed in us, we recognize Christ's ultimate authority in everything that we're a part of. Is that how you see it? Number four, Christ is the fullness of the Father. Christ is the fullness of the Father. Let's see that in verse 19, please. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Christ is the fullness of the Father. Something gave God the Father great pleasure. It was this, to cause all his fullness, all his essence all his powers, all his attributes to live in his son. And with the miracle of the incarnation, the virgin birth, the joining together of humanity and deity, we call it the hypostatic union. Fancy word to say when deity was welded together with humanity in Christ. The miracle of that created a lot of very unusual situations. Like God hungering in the wilderness and rebuking Satan with memorized scripture. Very unusual situations like growing up in favor with God and people while actually being the eternal word of God. 
Unusual situations like multiplying a sack lunch and feeding over 5,000 and having some lunch that he ate himself. And perhaps the most staggering and startling unusual situation of all, that God dying on the cross, bleeding, dehydrating, in excruciating pain, God for you. And then from that cross, before he dismissed his spirit in death, God forgiving another human being on the cross beside him of his sins. Very unusual situation. Yes, the incarnation made for some very unusual situations because it was God the Father's good pleasure for all of his fullness to dwell in Christ. Verse 20, please. And through him, Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. If Christ is being formed in us, and I hope that he is, then we will never think that Christ is only a man. But we rather will consider Jesus Christ to be God and man. You'll meet people this week, this month, this year, who think Jesus Christ was a fine teacher, a fine philosopher, a fine rabbi, and they won't believe for one second that he's also God. We must believe he's both. Fifth, Christ is the peacemaker for sinners. The only peacemaker for sinners. Verses 20 to the first part of 22. And through him, Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And now today's personal God story. This is Drew Fowler. I've always attended Calvary Bible Church here on number 62 Collins Avenue. I have grown up in a Christian house. My father was a Sunday school teacher and a Awana teacher and leader. My mother also was an Awana leader and sang in the choir. Uh, so I grew up hearing about the gospel my entire life. And I think it wasn't until I was about seven or eight years old that I seriously considered Christ. It was a Tuesday night, I'll never forget, I was coming to pick up my dad with my mom from Moana, and I was thinking about my parents' lifestyle and how they lived, and I noticed that there was something markedly different about their lives compared to my own, uh, something that they had that I didn't, something beautiful. So I remember telling my mom, Mom, I, I want to be a Christian. I think she sensed that uh, I didn't know exactly what I was asking for, so she told me I should speak to my dad that night, and we, we all talked about it and he would have opened up the Bible to me and explained for you're a sinner and you are you've fallen short of the glory of God and that I need to place faith in Christ and he would have explained that Jesus Christ came to earth lived a perfect life that qualified him to actually be our representative on the cross so he would have gone to the cross he would have died to pay the penalty for my sins God the Father rose him from the dead to prove that he accepted Jesus's death on my behalf and that if I place faith in him as his person and his finished work, that I would be saved. 
and intellectually at that point I said, I, I think I understand because there's something different about you guys that I don't have. And that night I would have placed faith in Jesus Christ. And I remember the next day, my dad came to me and said, hey, you missed the party last night at Iwana. And I said, no, but what happened? So he told me, every time a believer comes to Christ, the angels in heaven rejoice. And I said, wow, that, that was so cool. And I said, where did you find that? So he told me that was in the Bible. Uh, I think that's Luke chapter 15. So that was my first serious moment of contemplating Christianity. I was in high school, probably lived a seemingly good life, good kid, always behaved well. So everyone would say, hey, if they looked at me, they would probably think I was um, a very godly individual, but I wasn't growing spiritually because I wasn't in the Word. And it's now only that I look back over my life and see, and I've seen that it's only through the study of the Word that I'm, I'm made more holy, that I, that I grow in the faith. Um, thinking of a passage in First Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, where it says, Long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And I think that's something that my parents had that they didn't realize at the time. Um, I just realized that as a kid that my parents were different than me, but I didn't see the how, how it came about. I didn't know how it came about, and I just assumed it was Christ, and it was Christ. But how he did that, I wasn't sure of the practical application of my life. Um, so I started doing Bible studies with my dad, and he, he showed me scripture and shows that it actually has power, real power to change the way I think. There's a passage that talks about uh, God granting people the gift of repentance. Repentance is a change in thought that leads to a change in lifestyle, and that doesn't just usually happen by some sort of osmosis where you just wake up, hey, I'm going to change, but uh, that's that's the convicting power of the Holy Spirit where he convicted me uh, with his word to to grow by, by changing my thoughts in response to him. So my dad would have been really fundamental in that, as well as other believers uh, here at Calvary Bible Church. Um, like I said, I've, I've gone here my entire life, and I've seen men and women who have been serving all my life, all that as long as I can remember. So right now I'm, I'm doing teleos classes where Pastor Lee teaches us scripture, teaches us how to study the Bible for ourselves so we can grow in the faith, so we can share. And also just keeping good, godly company. I've always kept company that was good. Um, but hanging out with believers is, is different um, because we actually encourage each other. Um, and there's there's also people there to keep me accountable. I know of a number of men who can keep me accountable in my, my thought life and what I do. Uh, I think that's also important too. So if you haven't seriously considered uh, Christianity, I uh, just want to say don't don't think about it in terms of um, am I more holy than John or Frank or anyone else. Christianity is about sanctification as well. It's not just I'm saved from, from hell, but am I being more holy today than I was before? So if you are a Christian already and you said, hey, I place faith in Christ, I'm saved, done deal. That, that's not the right way to look at it. You should be thinking, am I more holy today than I was before? Am I more like Christ today than I was before? And if you can't really honestly say that, then just just examine yourself uh, to see if you really are in the faith. And if you haven't placed faith in Jesus Christ, I implore you to to keep looking. Uh, look at the Bible. Search the scripture. Uh, I always hear a lot of times uh, people say, you Christians are hypocrites. But don't judge a, a worldview by its abuses or its vices, but look at the content of what it teaches and the person Jesus Christ is profound, astounding. Uh, if you look at him, what he said, what he did, I think you'll 
you come to Christ. This is Drew Fowler. Thank you. And now, help for the hurting with the director of the Christian Counseling Center, Pastor Frederick Arnett. Good morning and welcome again as we continue uh, our discussion with Deborah, who we have in the studio with us. Uh, the question I have for you today, Deborah, is what is the essential quality when navigating relationship disputes and or conflicts? This may surprise some people, but I think the most essential quality from personal experience, from interacting with various clients and listening to their different disputes or the version of their disputes that they present when they come to therapy, the most essential quality would be humility. Okay. I believe that it is very important in order to be effective when you have relationship disputes or conflicts to take a posture or to live a life of humility. And this in no way means that you're right if you choose to be humble, but what it does mean is that you have an openness to engage the other person's perspective and not to feel the need to constantly advocate your position or your stance or your rightness mm -hmm. versus their supposed wrongness. The opposite of humility is pride. Mm -hmm. And often when you listen to a lot of people articulate what has happened in a relationship dispute or conflict, the issue that they're wrestling with is an issue of pride. And so they'll build a case for themselves. They will defend why they did what they did. Um, they will defend why they said what they said, particularly when they know that they are wrong or they were disrespectful. But very few individuals will take a posture of humbling themselves. And even if they know that they were absolutely right, interacting with the person in a manner of humility and mm -hmm. grace. I believe that humility feeds the expression of truth, authentic grace, and selflessness. Okay. And so you're able to better determine, especially if you're feeling angry, you're better able to rein in your anger so that it is righteous in its expression and not unrighteous. And you're also better able to determine whether or not this is a worthwhile or a worthless battle and how to fight the battle in a worthwhile versus a worthless manner. Okay. And sometimes the best way to fight a battle in a worthwhile manner would be to leave your sword in the sheath to not yank it out and cut the person to shred. Um, but I think particularly when you know that you've been wronged and you know that this person has acted in a manner that is unfair to you, it is very easy to jump and put on your self-righteous clothes and just present your case and galvanize support around you and demonize this person and do a lot of damage that will promote dissension rather than unity okay. and restoration and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. So if you're truly committed to reconciliation, and if you're going to be able to engage in reconciliation, particularly if you've been hurt by an individual and you've walked with integrity with them, but they've done some hurtful things, engaging a posture of humility is essential. I think the struggle for doing that, uh, a struggle that a lot of people articulate is that they feel weak if they choose a posture of humility. The truth is when you authentically walk in humility, it is not weak. It takes a lot of strength. Right. If you're not walking in humility, it is perceived as weakness, particularly if you're used to an approach of yelling, shouting, ranting, raving, and defending a point. But what's interesting, even in scripture, you'll find that, for example, in First Peter, Peter speaks to women and he says, if your husband is engaging in 
disobedience, you engage him with a gentle and quiet spirit. Mm -hmm. Again, that's promoting humility, Mm -hmm. meekness, Mm -hmm. not defending my point, arguing my position, making sure that everybody knows that I'm right and this person is wrong and humiliating them. It's taking on that disposition that you're going to submit yourself in love, first and foremost to your God, in the way that you interact with this person and even in your interactions with this person. And you don't have to win every battle to be effective in promoting a healthy relationship. Yeah, but the fact is, when we we are hurting, our posture then is to hurt back. You hurt me, I want to hurt you a little bit more than you hurt me, rather than taking on humility. We want revenge. That's why I believe a lot of the killings, as you mentioned already, is taking place in our, our country today. We want revenge, not humility and compassion. And well, I think, I mean, to be very honest with you, if you truly love the person, or if you truly seek to walk in love, or if you truly seek to walk out the life that Jesus Christ demonstrated, there is no other option but humility. Christ was humble, yes. even to the point of death. Yes. And um, I think that when we exact revenge, when we take on this person and we make sure that we present our case and we protect ourselves and we do what we need to do so people know they, they shouldn't mess with us, we miss out on the opportunity to demonstrate love as it has been demonstrated to us from the God that we claim we follow. And he said, love others as I have loved you. So that robs us of all excuses to treat individuals any way we feel like treating them. Because we recognize when we look at his life, he's loved us selflessly. Right. And from a posture of humility, look at the example of the way that Jesus treated Judas right before he betrayed him. He washed his feet. Right. And so... It is a choice. It is not an easy thing to do, but it is a powerful thing. Raging and ranting is not powerful. It's rudeness. Right. Thank you very much, Deborah, again, for being with us. And we pray that we would have all learned something from what you have shared with us these several Sunday. Thank you. Thank and you. God bless. And now, the Bible's answers to your questions. I have a simple, straightforward question I want to answer today, but the answer is quite lengthy. So it may be that my answer to a simple, short question will be divided into more than one broadcast. Here's the simple question. What happens to a true Christian after death? Well, in the first place, uh, that believer's soul and spirit separate from the body. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 9. Second, the soul and the spirit go to be with Christ in heaven immediately, where that soul and spirit, it would appear at least to me by inference, that they would receive an interim glorified body awaiting the glorification and resurrection of their own bodies uh, at the rapture of the church. So I'm saying that I believe the scriptures teach the soul and the spirit go to be with Christ in heaven where they uh, would then apparently receive an interim glorified body. I say that because Revelation 7, 9 through 12 talks of persons in heaven wearing robes. And my question is, how do souls and spirits wear robes? Uh, similarly, in that passage in Revelation 7, it talks of these 
souls and spirits having hands and, and voices. And it would just seem to me that there must be some kind of an interim glorified body. Number three, after a believer dies, the soul, spirit, and interim glorified body enjoy heaven until the rapture of the church event that we see taught by 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. At the rapture return, where those who have died and gone to be with Christ return in the air with the Savior, the interim glorified body is shed to give way or to yield to the particular believer's own original body resurrected, but now fully glorified. I see that in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. Then after that, the whole glorified believer body, soul, and spirit, returns to heaven with the Lord Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. That whole glorified believer enjoys the Lord in heaven during the seven years of tribulation judgment taking place on the earth. Uh, believers are, during that time when a tribulation is on the earth, up in heaven, believers in Christ are individually evaluated by Christ with respect to motivation and the effectiveness in bringing forth the gospel in ministry. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, and 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 15, uh, talk about this judgment of evaluation. It's called the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. Bema was the Greek term for the actual rostrum in a community where civil servants and politicians made their speeches, but also the rostrum was the place in the ancient Olympic Games where wreaths were awarded to those who performed well in athletic events. So sticking with this uh, Bema, judgment seat of Christ, for evaluation of believers in heaven during the time the tribulation is happening on earth, I just want to underscore that this evaluation is not a judgment with respect to sin. Romans 8.1 makes it clear that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Rather, this is a judgment with respect to reward. Uh, Christ either granting reward very graciously or withholding uh, reward. But destiny and fitness for heaven has already been settled, but the, it's the reward part of it that's evaluated during the time of the tribulation down on earth. You have been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 a.m. in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a Savior. <laughs>